Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 15th of July, 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands. Uh, well, we'll get straight on with uh, with Huawei, which, of course, has been cancelled. Uh, and we'll be talking about other people that have been cancelled later on in the programme. But in the meantime, uh, Huawei has been cancelled. So what has the government announced? Uh, that uh, buying a new Huawei 5G equipment is going to be banned after the 31st of December. So it's not banned today, uh, but it will be banned at the end of the year. Uh, all Huawei equipment is going to have to be removed from 5G networks by the end of 2027. Uh, and the existing ban on Huawei uh, from the core network equipment, from supplying core network equipment, uh, remains in force. Um, now, why they've decided to uh, to put the dates, these dates on this at the end of the year, I presume that this is maybe Alex has got some insight for us in a second, but uh, I assume that uh, this is because of commercial agreements already in place and they couldn't uh, do anything more stringent than that. But uh, yesterday then, uh, Oliver Dowden, uh, the so-called digital minister, said 5G will be transformative for our country, but only if we have confidence in the security and resilience of the infrastructure it's built upon. Uh, he said this decisive move provides the industry with the clarity and certainty it needs to get on with delivering 5G across the UK. So the question is, uh, what actually uh, caused this decision? Uh, the decision apparently taken by the, uh, uh, the National Security Council, chaired by Boris Johnson, uh, but it was on, based on, uh, on this advice from the National Cybersecurity Centre, NSC, uh, NCSC advice on the use of equipment from high-risk vendors in UK telecoms networks. Uh, and this was originally published in January, but they updated it on the 14th of July after analysis of the impact of the May 2020 amendment to the US direct product rule and entity list, which restrict Huawei's ability to use US technology and software uh, to manufacture semiconductors. Uh, independently. And uh, as you read uh, through this, one of the things that uh, becomes clear is that one of the main concerns is whether Huawei can maintain the supply chain, bearing in mind the sanctions from the United States uh, and the fact that Huawei isn't allowed to use uh, US technology. Huawei, for, they, for their part, seem to be saying uh, that, uh, that, that they have redesigned and used alternative uh, parts in order, and they should be able to maintain the supply chain, but then it goes on to say this. It's too early, it's too early uh, to say with confidence when exactly the US action will disrupt the supply chain, although there are indications that it's already taking effect. Uh, but they say our understanding is that Huawei will be unable to transfer affected equipment or certain details of that equipment, such as designs, binaries, uh, etc., to HCSEC. Uh, and this is the body which has been set up uh, with Huawei UK to uh, give to evaluate the security of Huawei's equipment. So they're saying that uh, Huawei will be able to transfer affected equipment to HCSEC for analysis while HCSEC remains part of a broader entity, which is on the entity list, in other words, subject to US sanctions. So Alex, uh, welcome to the program. I'm interested to get your thoughts on this decision having been finally made. Uh, and whether the whether the uh, criticism and particularly because the the uh, National Cybersecurity Center and GCHQ seem to have uh, plans in place to, to assess the capability of Huawei to deliver secure product, and it's only the U.S. decision um, which is putting some doubt on that. 
Yes, Mike, it is a US-led decision, effectively America's decision at the start of the year to have uh, this ban or uh, arm's length ag agreement arrangement for Huawei uh, sounded the death knell for Huawei's ability to supply to any of the five ICE countries. And of course, it became a political football with the Americans on one side and uh, Britain, Australia and New Zealand on the other at one point because of their closeness to Chinese tech companies. It correlates very closely uh, the advocacy of Huawei correlates very closely uh, with those who are globalist or pro-EU mindset in the government. And that's advice from the NCSC, which previously was an in-house part of GCHQ housed in Cheltenham called CESG in those days. That body uh, you know, was the same one which cleared Huawei to be part of a consortium supplying GCHQ's own internal classified telephony system in 2007, give or take a year. Uh, and at the time, of course, we at GCHQ were told, as I've said before, uh, not to raise doubts about Huawei UK's involvement in that BT-led consortium because it had been cleared. It seems that the people who had cleared that now got wind uh, of an idea that uh, it's, it's another road we're following here. The idea of cooperating so closely with uh, a Chinese uh, military-owned company, even in a daughter, uh, an affiliate sense, is out of the question. So it's, it's a changing of the guard. Uh, and a, no, a realpolitik decision more than a technological decision. More generally, the work that CESG, or as it's now called the National Cyber Security Center, does as a, a now a sort of spun off part of GCHQ is advise on what's safe and what's not for the British government to use. But of course, if there are any people of malicious intent uh, near the top of that organization, they can use that monopoly position to say this uh, cartel gets the deal, that one uh, is advised against and therefore gets automatically chopped out of the deal. Uh, in one sentence, it's the Mark Sedwill crowd that brought Huawei in from the cold in 2007 to the disgust of British, let alone American and other Five Eyes officers in 2007. Now Sedwill's out on his ear, Huawei goes out with him. Uh, well, that seems to be the case. Now, the question, but the question I have for you, Alex, is because they did set up this HCSEC centre, uh, which is supposedly independent, uh, but is, uh, and Huawei seemed to be providing uh, plan the uh, blueprints and binaries code uh, for evaluation there. So um, I'm just wondering uh, what your thoughts are on on how cooperative. I mean that seems to be a pretty unprecedented situation that a, that a commercial organisation is providing that level of of access to to uh, the infrastructure that they're providing in order to try to demonstrate uh, that it's safe to use from a from a security if point of view. I mean. It is pretty uh, unprecedented. Of course, the usual way in which uh, tech companies supply code or anything approaching code to the government is on the basis known as commercial inconfidence, which is we, we understand that you'll never disclose this even in freedom of information requests or our competitors will make toast of us. Uh, that's the usual arrangement. Huawei has been very uh, unusual in complying with this because of the juiciness of the deal. Uh, it could be that there was Chinese espionage intended to go through that channel. But as we discussed a week ago with Dave Ellis on the programme, it could also be that the British authorities allowed Huawei to stay in this deal, even knowing that their fate was sealed, in order to get their hands for a few months on that unprecedented uh, openness uh, about what Huawei used. That is perfectly possible that, you know, if, if it's like children playing um, a, uh, a peekaboo game, isn't it? Uh, if I can see you, you can see me. That is often done in signals intelligence and information security where uh, companies are involved that are not just rivals, but also partners.
Yes. Now, you uh, mentioned uh, the GCHQ uh, situation, which we originally reported in May, I think it was May 2019. Um, and as my understanding is that actually any of the equipment in there isn't affected by this because anything pre-5G is not affected at all. Uh, but what's uh, just on a slightly uh, positive note for some people, perhaps, um, what's clear is that this is going to put a uh, real problem, put the, 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 the telecom, telecommunications companies in real difficulties with respect to the 5G rollout. Uh, other companies like Ericsson and Nokia aren't uh, producing enough equipment fast enough to meet the deadlines that the, that the telecommunications companies have. So some people are going to view this, aside from any security aspect of this, as a pretty positive development because of, at the very least it delays the rollout of 5G significantly, Brian. Uh, yeah, well, a lot of people are going to be interested in that because, of course, many people still deeply concerned about health issues in relation to 5G. And I don't think those are going to go away. But this is obviously a political decision, certainly not for the good of the health of the nation. There's something else going on behind the scenes. Yes. Uh, OK, well, Brian, a question for you then. Are you a hashtag mask moaner? Because uh, lots and lots of people... Uh, on Twitter complaining about mask moaners. So here's an example. Uh, these idiots moaning about wearing masks uh, have to be the stupid morons on the planet, the most stupid morons on the planet. Uh, and uh, this, uh, another one here. Uh, what the F has happened to you, England? Uh, moaning about wearing face masks like you just had your freedom taken off you. I feel for your children and old folks because you obviously don't give an F about them dying. Uh, not a peep in Scotland uh, and more. So it, there's there's a, a lot of stuff going on uh, on Twitter about people concerned about uh, the, the situation with masks. But uh, I just thought I would contrast that with uh, some of the mainstream media uh, publications on this. So here's the BBC uh, from uh, yesterday. Uh, and what are they saying? Uh, Wales chief medical officer said very little had changed in the science, which uh, pointed to them having little benefit, so masks have little benefit. Now, of course, it's science that's driving uh, the use of masks or the demand for us to use masks from the 24th of July uh, in all shops uh, and other retail outlets. Uh, but is it the science? Because apparently the science isn't showing anything, any great benefit, if there is any at all. Uh, here's primarydoctor.org saying uh, masks are neither effective nor safe, a summary of the science. This is a, a very good summary of the science, so I do recommend people go and look at that. That's from the uh, 6th of July. Uh, and then uh, here's the World Health Organization themselves. Uh, what are they saying? At the present time, the widespread use of masks by healthy people in the community setting is not yet supported by high quality or direct scientific evidence, and there are potential benefits and harms to consider. Uh, and once again, I'm just going to mention the precautionary principle because, of course, uh, that is what's uh, being rolled out to uh, cause us to implement certain policies with respect to COVID-19. It's also being used to uh, roll out policies with, with respect to climate change and so on. But some things the precautionary principle doesn't apply to. It doesn't apply to 5G. And it doesn't apparently apply to, uh, to masks. the use of masks either. Yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. Uh, my, my response to people on social media talking about the idiots who won't wear face masks is, first of all, let's get the evidence about the dangers of coronavirus on the table. Let's get the figures and the statistics about the actual number of people that have died solely from coronavirus. And I believe for the NHS, that's somewhere about 1,700, a little over. Um, 
more work to be done on that. But let's get the evidence on the table about why we need to wear masks. And then let's also get the evidence of the dangers of masks on the table. Um, and until that evidence is on the table, we can see it and make an informed decision because that's another phrase the government likes. We should all be able to make informed decisions. We can't make them at the moment. When we can, we can decide if we want to wear a mask or not. And I'm not swayed by the fact that a pilot in the Second World War has to wear an oxygen mask. Well, the, the key difference there was it was an oxygen mask. <laughs> yes. It was, wasn't a mask which is preventing him breathing oxygen, but that's another thing. Yes, uh, as opposed to somebody being forced to wear one on the London Underground. Yeah. But let's bring in the BBC. And of course, this is where it gets interesting. So the BBC here saying in its headline, coronavirus, why attitudes to masks have changed around the world. So what are we in, into by that headline, Mike? This behavior. is, is behaviour. Yeah. This is behaviour change. And of course, the British government boasting that its behavioural insights team was able to change behaviour of people. And that means the way they think without um, the target population being aware. So here's the BBC. This is not about science. It's about behaviour. Uh, but this is a key part of the article. The number of governments recommending face coverings has gone up significantly over the past six months. As of mid-March, about 10 countries and policies recommending face coverings, now more than 130 countries and 20 US states do, says Masks for All, an activist group of researchers that advocates the use of homemade masks during the pandemic. Um, some studies also suggest that people's attitudes have changed. So we've got the attitudes changing. Some studies, there's no detail there at all, Mike, but we've got some organisation which appears to have popped out of nowhere, which, of course, the BBC is happy to promote, even though it's talking about producing homemade masks. Now, I'm going to say if people want to help us on this, because we had a quick look at Masks for All. This is uh, their website. Lots of statistics. Um, and uh, backed up by amazing um, videos. I can't play the, the video here, but I've taken a screenshot. Uh, so one of the key players from Mars Rule, Jeremy, uh, uses a squeezy bottle that will produce a sort of mist of uh, whatever he's got in it, soapy water. And he says that if I squirt this directly at the mirror, you can obviously see the droplets on the mirror. That's equivalent to your normal breath. Well, I'm, I'm glad I don't meet too many people who are spraying <laughs> me to that extent. But then when he hands, holds up one of his homemade T-shirt face masks, well, not as many droplets go on the mirror. So this is a scientific study, but it gets worse because when you get into mask rules own material with lots of graphs, you find the truth is buried amongst it because it says here, is, uh, this is just one example where it was talking about Italy and Korea. It says natural experiments are scientifically imperfect because there's no direct control group. So we can't be sure that any change is due to the masks. But the whole website is about masks and the BBC is promoting this website as if this website has got something factual to offer. Mm. So I sent a quick email off to them asking for their medical risk assessment. Um, presumably, if they're promoting masks, they've done a risk assessment looking at the effect of uh, oxygen starvation and excess CO2 on people wearing the masks. 
So I've asked for a copy of that. I've also copied in BBC for what it's worth and we'll see what they say. But I suspect it's silence, Mike. Uh, absolutely. Uh, now, a story from uh, Birmingham Live here, a uh, local new newspaper uh, owned by Reach, of course, which means very soon Birmingham, Birmingham Live will have a new editorial board or at least an overarching editorial board, as will every other of the uh, so-called live websites around the country. Uh, but the uh, headline here revealed 16 care homes given £1,000 to take COVID-positive hospital patients. Uh, so let's see what they're saying. Birmingham City Council gave care homes a £1,000 extra cash incentive to take in hospital patients in a hurry, including some with coronavirus, so more NHS beds could be freed up for critical, critically ill people. Uh, they say uh, 16 homes in the city took up the offer, made in line with the government instructions to free up acute beds. Uh, today, a care home manager who rejected the advance said she's certain it's one of the reasons that none of her residents have been infected. In other words, she rejected the £1,000 bung uh, and wouldn't take uh, patients from hospital, uh, contrary to the other homes, and uh, she didn't end up with uh, residents infected. Um Yes, and we're hearing that story other places across the country, but freeing up beds that were never used, uh, Mike, because where did the, where, who was occupying well, well, those the, beds? This is, this is exactly right. Um, so uh, what, was, what did Birmingham uh, City Council have to say about this? Well, here's their statement. The £1,000 funding was provided to allow the care provider to purchase additional PPE, pay additional staff, and conduct additional cleansing to allow COVID positive residents to be isolated and discharged. They mean discharged from hospital. Uh, they went on to say the payment was to allow those additional costs to be funded, meaning COVID status should not be a barrier to discharge. Uh, well, this is a pretty spectacular state of affairs. Um, so uh, uh, care homes endured the unimaginable 13% of care home residents died, yet Boris Johnson says it was their fault for paying the terrible price of his government's mistakes. That's uh, Jack Dromey, MP, who's uh, MP for Birmingham, Erdington, sorry. Uh, and uh, he <laughs> describes himself as, as furious uh, over what has happened. Uh, and then we have uh, this gentleman here. This is Dr. David Rosser, who's the chief executive of University Hospitals Birmingham. Uh, and he is basically saying that with hindsight, uh, the city created too much capacity uh, by sending people back to care homes in the way that they did uh, and so that some of the frantic measures to empty beds turned out to be not needed and the Nightingale in Birmingham of course never saw a patient. It's now been mothballed uh, and so he added that the impact on care homes was not fully appreciated. So they're looking back at the situation and saying well we didn't really appreciate what the impact would be. Well these guys are the medically qualified, the scientific community they must have understood what the, what, the, what the impact, the potential impact of this was. And where was the precautionary principle here? Brian, there was none. It was no. applied to get the hospitals empty as quickly as possible. And it didn't matter how many people died in the care homes. And the fact that a, that a council, and perhaps many other councils have done the same, the fact that a council paid uh, money to care homes in order to facilitate this makes matters even worse. Yeah, and there is the expression common sense. Everything we're being told has to come down to a scientific decision, but a common sense decision says if you put elderly people, um, many of them with other conditions, 
into the closed environment of a care home or a residential home in a very restricted environment with other very vulnerable people. You're going to get deaths. You don't need to be scientifically qualified to work that one out. Uh, absolutely. Uh, we published an article on lockdown deaths yesterday. It's entitled Lockdown Deaths, Not COVID Deaths. Uh, please uh, read that and uh, share it if you like it. Uh, we've had quite a, quite a lot of response to that already um, and uh, mostly extremely positive. So thanks, thanks for that. Now, Alex, uh, what's uh, what's going on on the continent uh, on this matter? Newspaper Brabant Dagblad, for uh, one of the provinces of the Netherlands, uh, is reporting a national story here. Uh, in the uh, image, there is Hugo de Jonge, the health minister, previously known to UK column viewers and readers because he was previously the minister bringing in the Scottish policy of the named person for children to the Netherlands under the name of Joost Beschermen. Uh, now he is the health minister, and despite apparent conflicts of interest, because his brother is in a quite a related area of medical research at uh, Radboud University in Nijmegen in the east of the country here, uh, he is now saying that uh, he has reviewed the draft of the legislation, of course in the, the Dutch model, like in most non-common law countries, ministers draft laws before parliament gets wind of them because ministers are not parliamentarians. And he has uh, finally allowed a sort of second revision of this secretive bill to come out. And to everyone's um, great surprise, he said, I'm gracious enough now to remove from the bill the provision that the police can storm your house and check that you're keeping a metre and a half distance from people who are not related to you. Um, the BD commenting on this uh, rather interestingly puts it that now that the coronavirus pandemic is lasting longer than expected, Parliament here in The Hague wants a legal basis for the measures. Well, that's kind of, again, the, the, the Dutch tr uh, Trump and the rest of us in their honesty, there were no legal bases for the measures in any European country uh, until very recently. It was all done by emergency ministerial decree, equivalent of uh, um, an executive order in the US or orders in council or statutory instruments in Britain without parliamentary involvement. The Dutch are pretty shocked by this. And even the revision of the bill uh, is saying, well, we won't oblige people to put track and trace apps on their phone, but we'll make it jolly difficult for them not to. And we still reserve the power to send the police into flats uh, or houses if we think that there are uh, foster parents or, you know, occasional foster parents uh, not keeping their distance from children that they look after one afternoon a week or so on. Extremely draconian, very um, repugnant to the Dutch tradition of policing and society as it is to Britain. And uh, we have more detail on what's been going on recently in the video you're about to show. This is from Onrecht TV. On Midsummer's Day, there was uh, look very carefully at that van which is just coming into view in the right hand corner so unfortunately the pan panning goes either side but this was a protest on the marley felt in the hague against the coronavirus measures on the 21st of june the gentleman had just hopped out of the van there in civilian clothes they are members of the what's known as the romeo squad in dutch radio talk that's the arrest team and as you can see they're dragging a chap away by his legs it is very hard to understand this in any other way than that they are deliberately provoking a riot so that the uniformed cops who now come into view can start laying in the truncheons other footage from a few hundred yards away the same afternoon shows um, middle-aged people sitting on park benches uh, that afternoon, uh, having the truncheon brigades coming up to them in uniform and saying, clear off. And uh, you know, as soon as they st stand up to say, I'm doing no harm, you can hear the truncheons thudding into their flesh, you know, 40, 50 year old people offering no resistance or even rudeness to the Dutch police. Uh, so quite a shock to the Dutch that this has all happened. And, uh, you know, very soon we're going to see what final form this, this enacted bill will take. 
but it will give, I think, plenty of scope for police to effectively insist on uh, searching your property. Dutch law is uh, quite coy about this. It uh, uses socialistic language. It doesn't talk about private dwellings or family homes or residences. It talks about the, the houses or the residences of citizens, a very ominous turn of phrase is being used, at least in describing this law. This is, um, this is fascism, Alex. We are watching something extraordinary unfold in Western Europe at the moment, mm -hmm. surely. Yes, uh, a lot of people who are on the left of the political spectrum, uh, but the old style ones who didn't bandy about the term fascism, are starting to use this term. A lot of centre-right voters in the Netherlands, in this country they're divided between Christian and secular voters, but there are parties covering centre-right from both perspectives. And a lot of their voters, uh, the equivalent of the Conservative Party roughly, are starting to say, this is fascism. This, you know, Here in the Netherlands, of course, it's only a, a narrow channel of sea separating Benelux and France from Britain, but over here, People have got memories of the Gestapo and their local Dutch collaborators uh, invading houses for very similar reasons. Are you harboring Jews? Barge in. And uh, it's going to get worse. We're going to show you in the next couple of slides, which I think uh, Mike has got lined up. Uh, yeah, uh, because so, so, over the border. Yeah, go ahead. Well, here we are. Over the border in Germany, in the province of Westphalia, a very short drive from me here, actually, in the town of Gütersloh. Um, the headline here says, uh, unannounced corona tests door to door. Citizens are surprised by the Bundeswehr, by the, the federal German army. These gentlemen are soldiers. They're knocking on doors with a couple of other officers in, in tow uh, from civilian outfits. But the men on the stairs are soldiers. They're going to people's doors in the town of Gütersloh, which is Germany's Leicester at the moment, the hotspot supposedly for cases. And they're saying you must shove this swab down your throat or, or your nose. Uh, a lot of people are having to gag. It's a very unpleasant test. At least the soldiers aren't holding people down. They're giving them the swabs, but there's no choice about it. Even last month, Gutersloh um, were having soldiers line up outside and call people out very Nazi style again, come out to the street and line up and be tested. And the gentlemen in that photograph, interestingly enough, are three migrant workers. If you, if you look at the caption, uh, they're all in their early 20s. One's a Turk, one's a gentleman from the Balkans, and one has the name Steve Martin, if I remember, so from an English-speaking country. They're in Gutesloh because it's a booming town in the, one of the most economic central parts of Germany. Uh, they weren't expecting that, were they? And the soldiers on the stairs are handing people back on a clipboard their tests, saying, you will not be carted away today. You have tested negative. What you were saying a moment ago about this new lingo coming out of Birmingham, COVID positive, COVID status. I haven't heard of those terms before. Very reminiscent of how HIV was started to be talked about in the 90s as a matter of human rights. You know, some of us are positive, but that status should be another protected characteristic. Uh, another linguistic indication, I think, that COVID and its, its, uh, its logic and its language is here for decades, not for a few months. Uh, well, that's absolutely right, Alex. And of course, this language is coming in because we're heading towards immunity passports. The immunity passport is going to tell us what our, our, uh, our COVID status is. Um, and, uh, and so we've got to get used to this kind of language. You're going to hear it uh, from now on. Lots of people wondering when lockdown is going to end and, and not very happy when the suggestion comes back to them. It isn't. This is, this, we are starting to see the new normal build in front of us yeah. now. And, and the, the language and the infrastructure that's being built makes it clear where we're going. Uh, and this winter, uh, you know, the, the second wave is going to come along, whether it's genuine or not. And we would argue that it's probably not. Uh, and uh, that second wave is going to justify pretty draconian measures. 
Yes, and in each European country or Western country, it will go outwards from testbed cities. In many cases, as we've been reporting from different countries already, if you've got a local willing city council, municipality, county, state, they will go along with it first. Uh, so, you know, Britain will have the same with Leicester. I predict Bristol will be one of these because it wants to be a smart city and ahead of the curve in that regard. And in the case of Germany, we've got Gütersloh, which is not just any ordinary 100,000 strong uh, German city. There's many of those in Germany, but Gütersloh is where there was a Royal Air Force base, uh, where there were red caps, British military police allegedly involved in the brutal arrest of uh, Peter Hofschroer and his mother, Barbara, that we reported on some time ago, who had already got a, a refugee and asylum status at that point. Uh, so, again, the local police had already got used to having military heavies coming in on flimsy excuses in that city and saying we need to do some truncheon work here. So it's going to fan outwards from places where the pretext is, oh, this is a very mixed immigrant rich population, there's lots of cases, and people in the country areas will think, well, I'm safe from that, this is a quiet white part of the country. It will fan outwards until you suddenly find your county or city uh, is the last one that isn't uh, implementing these measures. And then, of course, the pressure on your local councillors will be to follow suit. Yeah, well, I, I agree with your analysis there of how it's going to spread. And while you were speaking, my mind went back to um, Tony Blair coming to visit Plymouth many years ago. Um, he met the city council. There was a particular journalist present who told us afterwards that it, some of the discussion was the scariest he'd ever heard, where they were talking about how the city was to be divided up into zones. Certain classes of people would be allowed to live in one zone but not the other. And at one point, one of the council officials said, well, we're having a few problems putting part of this policy through. And Tony Blair's reply, according to the man who was present in the meeting, was, quote, you've been given special powers, you should use those powers. And that was uh, going back some years, but I think it was indicative of how we were going to see power, real power given to the city mayors mm -hmm. and to the, city, uh, to the creation of city states. And I think what, what we're now seeing and what you're describing, Alex, is this thing coming to fruition. I just hope that there's uh, some old Labour supporters and some we will call them the old style socialists who still have got enough wits about them to understand that they're looking at, looking at on the surface fascism light under the Tory suit of respectability. But that's what we're actually dealing with is, is fascism. It's becoming very clear. Um, OK, if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us out there, and that would be very much appreciated. Now, uh, here's an interesting uh, thing. Uh, the US def uh, EU Defence Union, the end, is the question that I'm asking. I think the answer is probably no, but we'll come on, we'll explain that in a second. Um, but uh, what you're seeing there, the, the photograph is the Minister for the Armed Forces, James Heapy, and uh, the US Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy. Uh, they've signed a memorandum of agreement on the joint modernization of both the British and US armies. Um, and this agreement is a sign of intent to formalize a number of ongoing initiatives between the two armies, boosting opportunities to cooperate effectively as modern warfare continues to evolve. And so it goes on. Uh, some of the language in the press release was, was extremely uh, uh, opaque and, uh, you know, and unnecessarily so. But anyway, the, what I'm asking here is, has there been a shift uh, in UK policy here with respect to the EU and where the Uk sits uh, in, in, militarily? Well, 
And if so, what is the nature of this realignment? Well, perhaps we get a clue about that from the Huawei decision, because, of course, uh, Britain wants a trade agreement with the U.S. Uh, they want to operate closer with the U.S. in terms of Five Eyes and so on. And, of course, the U.S. absolutely pushing the, the, uh, the demand that uh, Britain chucks Huawei out of the U.K. But in the meantime, uh, we have this from Chatham House. Uh, published a couple of days ago, why the UK has taken foreign policy out of Brexit negotiations. Now, of course, the future relationship negotiations still ongoing. Um, but let's have a look and see what they say. Uh, Chatham House saying the government is no longer pursuing agreement with the EU on foreign policy development and defence uh, because it thinks the stakes are low and better alternatives exist in pursuing its international objectives. Well, if we remember what the... Uh, the, the future relationship negotiations uh, were supposed to look like. It was this. This is what Barnier presented. 50% uh, of it based on the economic partnership on the left-hand side there. 50% based on the security partnership on the right-hand side. So as far as the EU was concerned at the start of the year, uh, immediately after the 31st of January, uh, defence and security and intelligence services and policing and so on, absolutely key part of the Brexit negotiations. Uh, but but uh, we got a clue as to what was going on when they announced the negotiating groups. Uh, so we've shown this before, but we'll run through it again. The trade and goods, trade and services, a level playing field for trade, competition and so on, transport, energy, fisheries, mobility, social security coordination, law enforcement, thematic cooperation, participation in union programs, horizontal arrangements and governance. But the key thing that the uh, said at the time was the European Commission notes the United Kingdom proposes not to include a negotiating group dedicated to cooperation on foreign policy, security and defence. So it's clear that uh, Chatham House is, uh, is understanding that this was a position uh, and that position hasn't changed over the last six months. Now, of course, uh, COVID-19 has put uh, uh, the, the brakes on a lot of the negotiation. Uh, but if we remember the, uh, the timeline for this, uh, the deadline was the end of June for any extension on the transition uh, period and that the government has already announced they don't intend to extend that transition period. So we will be leaving on the 31st of December this year, uh, no matter what happens. Um, and of course, as we said on the programme on Monday, uh, this, what, what we're seeing perhaps is, is a ramping up of uh, the discussion on this because we were going to see headlines very similar to those we saw at the end of last year. In fact, for two years prior to that, with all the furore over the potential to leave with no deal. But nonetheless, the question is, has there been a shift in policy with respect to EU defence? Uh, so the, uh, the Chatham House uh, paper goes on to say the UK has largely retreated from the debate on the EU's aspirations for a defence union unwind its participation in the common security and defence policy missions in third countries and remained outside developments to enhance member states' military capabilities via policies such as permanent structured cooperation, that's PESCO. Uh, and they say the UK now joins the US, Australia and Canada in holding positions on China, which are more strident than that of the EU. And they end by saying this does not necessarily mean that the EU-UK foreign policy relationship is on course for conflict, but it may evolve in a less institutional direction than the existing relationships between the EU and its other key foreign policy partners. Now, this is very interesting because actually it reflects what's going on in the EU. Last week, uh, the EU held their EU Defence Washington Forum. Uh, it was a, a, a sort of 
virtual event. But Joseph Borrell, who's the uh, EU High Representative, basically the EU's Foreign Minister, was giving a very positive uh, speech uh, about how EU defence integration and union is going. He was being very upbeat about it. On the other hand, uh, this gentleman, uh, Radoslav Sikorsky, uh, sorry, Radoslav Sikorsky is the uh, chairman of the Delegation for Relations with the US, but he's also an MEP. He was absolutely complaining about uh, the uh, the state of EU defence union. He's basically saying it's, it hasn't progressed as well as quickly or as well as they had expected it to. They haven't got the institutions up and running. He wants to see much more in terms of commitment to PESCO and so on. But at this point, the EU is still not able to even put uh, any boots on the ground, as it were. So, uh, Alex, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, because um, although the, uh, the Chatham House article is suggesting that Britain is taking a massive step back from the EU and reorienting towards the United States, uh, and, and that, uh, that new bilateral agreement that was signed yesterday uh, perhaps shows us a little bit of that, but on the other hand, there is, there is a reality within the EU that they haven't progressed with defence union uh, as quickly as they were expecting to, despite uh, Federica Mogherini's uh, excitement about the launch of PESCO a couple of years ago. Um, so what are your thoughts on this? Is this, is this uh, Britain absolutely changing its policy in this, this respect and reorienting towards the United States again? Or, or is this just we're not getting involved institutionally with Defence Union because those institutions actually don't exist yet? It's more of the latter. It is a change of approach, a change of tack, not a change of strategy. Uh, the British Foreign and Security Policy Establishment has got fellow travellers, notably in the Beltway in Washington and in the think tanks up and down the US East Coast. And it's also got fellow travellers in what uh, was once called New Europe. Radek Sikorsky in Poland is a classic example. He's rabidly pro-Anglo-American, has been his whole career, and even left his fellow Eastern European reformers in the lurch at one stage so that Poland could kind of go it alone into a super category. Um, the intelligence arrangements uh, that Britain and America have with the continent have been the same. They have treated each country as a kind of honorary member of the, of the Five Eyes Club, almost a full member for a long while. So there is no real need to have a structure called EU defence uh, from the perspective of these planners in London and Washington and Eastern Europe. Uh, it, if you can get the same effect of threatening Russia with war uh, through bilateral arrangements, you can. It may be that enough of a stitch up has now been done from London and Washington's perspective and, and Warsaw's perspective to some extent that the formal structures don't need to go any further. So it might be a kind of disillusionment that the continentals, particularly the old Europe, the Western European countries haven't done their their bit, got their acts together, but it might just be, well, that's all we needed from that uh, vector. Now we can do the rest through bilateral arrangements. That's the overarching strategy I see. And it correlates again very closely. All the items we're presenting in the news today have basically two forms of elitism involved. One that regards uh, Europe as an end in itself, as a, as a block to world government in itself. And that includes certainly Sir Mark Sedwell's contingent. And the other, which may be in the ascendant in the British civil service now and the associated bits of British hard policy, uh, sees the Anglo-American alliance as a means uh, to achieving the same. But in either model, the Anglo-American deep stater involved thinks that he can call the shots on the continent. That, that remains unchanged, whatever goes on. Absolutely. Thank you very much for that. And while all those um, 
uh, things are going on in the background. What's the uh, public being fed in UK? Well, of course, one of the uh, big issues was Black Lives Matter. Uh, the BBC and the Mail reporting on the incident with the statue in Bristol. Um, this uh, statue pulled down by the Black Lives Matter mob uh, a couple of weeks ago. But uh, what have we got now? Well, we've got the statue replaced uh, by one of the um, Black Lives Matter's protester, Jen Reid. Uh, she's suddenly popped up in a resin and steel uh, statue because a sculptor got in contact with her and said he was, you know, thought what she was doing was amazing and would she like to work with him? And the next minute this statue has been cast. I would say it cost a lot of money. Mm. A lorry turns up and it's uh, lifted in position on the original Colston statue in Bristol. So here it is. The local council hasn't approved it. I'd suggest that if we went and put a UK column statue somewhere in Plymouth just briefly one morning, we'd have a visit by the police very quickly and it would also disappear, but not so for Black Lives Matter. But this is what the lady had to say. On my way home from the protests on the 7th of June, I felt an overwhelming impulse to climb onto the plinth, just completely driven to do it by the events which had taken place right before. Seeing the statue of Edward Coulson being thrown into the river felt like uh, a truly historical moment. Huge. Sorry, got a little bit of extra text in there. It shouldn't be there, of course. When I was stood there, on the plinth and raised my arm in a black power salute. It was totally spontaneous and I didn't even think about it. It was like an electrical charge of power going through me. This was an amazing moment for this lady. My immediate thoughts were for the enslaved people who died at the hands of Colston and to give them power. I wanted to give George Floyd power. I wanted to give power to black people like me who had suffered injustices and inequality a surge of power out to them all. So it's all about me and power. Um, but remarkably, we've now got uh, UK national media promoting this story and also promoting this man. This is the artist, Mark Quinn, um, who's um, jumped up to get this statue produced. And he says that keeping the issue of black people's lives and experiences in the public eye and doing whatever I can to help is so important. Those of us who've had privilege have a duty to be part of change. So classic language there, the privilege issue coming up, and it's your duty to follow the mob to get the change. Well, unlike uh, the press and the BBC, I decided to have a look at this man and see what he was about. And uh, the Mail article, to be fair, did point this out, a self-portrait in his own blood and a solid gold Kate Moss, the work of artist Mark Quinn. Um, but there was a lot more. So the Sydney Morning Herald had been commenting on an um, uh, uh, exhibition of artwork and Jacqueline Babington, uh, senior curator of contemporary art, said that Quinn's self, ex uh, self exists spontaneously with the past, present and future. Self is one of his works. Quinn's material of choice is blood. And by sculpting with biological matter, he contributes to our understanding of hyperrealism in a unique way. So I'm not sure whether you're up on hyperrealism, uh, Mike, but we're about to take you there. Um, so he produced his own head in frozen blood, which he'd taken from himself over a number of weeks and months. 5.6 litres of blood put inside a silicon mould of his own head. And it only exists because it can be refrigerated to keep it cold enough. 
And uh, if you do a quick search on him, you find he's got into other stuff, some of which I'm not going to describe. But here, Quinn depicts the head of his newborn son formed of his own placenta. So uh, this is really great stuff. And if you don't know where these people are heading, well, this is part of the exhibition that the lady is talking about. So this one is not by Quinn himself. It's by another artist. Uh, but this is the sort of stuff they're producing. That, that's that is hyper real that we're looking at. That's at hyper realism. Yeah. yeah, lovely, isn't it? Yeah. And the BBC and the Daily Mail and other mainstream media think that this artist is the man to advise us on what we should be doing in respect to Black Lives Matter. Well, common sense luckily has come in here because this was a tweet sent to me earlier on, and uh, Peter Whittle here says. Uh, if this is allowed to stand, i.e. her statue stays on that plinth, then the triumph of mod, mob rule will be complete. Um, Alex, just to ask you very um, quickly, we often see these mysterious artists, sculptures, uh, sculptors um, appear in social issues and their opinions are quoted and everything else but there's some very very dark stuff around by these people what do you think yes i think that they're selected for that uh, for example you can look at pie and mash films with bill maloney he did a, a about 10 years ago now a piece from jersey called sun sea sand and satan i think it's called or sun sea and satan and there he finds some very very dark art being left around deliberately in all the occasions locations where abuse of children went on as regards mob rule, uh, thankfully, there was a very memorable prescription against it three and a half thousand years ago in the book of Exodus, chapter 23, which is only three chapters after the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. There's a memorable way of dealing with mobs or rather not following them. Yeah, thank you for that. OK, right. Well, let's uh, let's just introduce your next bit, Alex, because uh, we mentioned this a couple of times. Tom Cotton's uh, Senator Tom Cotton's uh, Op-ed in the New York Times, causing all kinds of trouble, sending the troops uh, was his, uh, the, the title of his opinion piece. Uh, and this resulted in a backlash from New York Times journalists, as we've mentioned before, putting uh, black New York Times staff in danger was the claim. And it was very dumb. I stand with my colleagues. Uh, well, of course, the commissioning editor who uh, put that op-ed in the New York Times ended up resigning. So uh, here's Neiman Lab after New York, after newsroom protests, the New York Times opinion page editor and the top editor at the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Inquiry have resigned. So a number of people uh, resigned. Uh, but there's been another resignation, uh, Alex, and that is uh, Barry Weiss. Yes, and uh, before we bring the quotation up, you might want to see whether your bonus for 10 is, you can identify where this still of Barry Weiss was taken. In a studio, there's your clue. Do you remember? Uh, no. No, this was January 2019. She went on the Joe Rogan Show, a very big podcast, who have video cameras in the studio, as they all do these days. And she was asked why she was writing so furiously against the then US presidential candidate of the Democratic Party, Congresswoman, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. And Barry Weiss famously answered, uh, she's an Assad toady. To which Joe Rogan, because he's not part of the darling set of the media, had the temerity to reply with a question, what's a toady? And then she sat there, as the Dutch idiom says, with a mouthful of teeth. And after a few seconds, she managed to, to stammer out, I think I used the word correctly. 
So this was Barry Weiss two years ago, enjoying being in the media bubble, writing fluffy op-ed pieces, and to give her credit, also bringing some serious conscientious objectors and dissidents to the meet to the um, headlines as well, as she now boasts in her resignation piece, which is on her website, barryweiss.com. But here she is, and I think the quotation which you're going to bring up is um, quite telling. She says, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. And in her resignation letter, she goes on to say that stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences. That's a quote. And she says, why, why are we publishing our 4,000th op-ed arguing that Donald Trump is a unique danger to the country and the world? And self-censorship has become the norm. Well, she lived by the media sword and died by it, I think is a, 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 the best way of putting it. I don't take her sincerely. The arguments are sound, obviously, but until very recently she was riding that uh, bandwagon and uh, herself decrying those who had wrong think. For example, Tulsi Gabbard, who had the temerity uh, to actually you know, talk about the Syrian people as though they were sovereign and had chosen their president themselves. That made her an Assad toady, but she didn't know, Mary Weiss didn't know what the word toady meant. Until very recently, Barry Weiss was still the kind who, if you uh, questioned her motives, would say you were an anti-Semite and a misogynist. Uh, but now it, is, now it has come nigh unto thee to keep the Old Testament theme going. It's, uh, it's her turn now. I don't know what you gentlemen think about that. Uh, well, well I, I asked Patrick about this, and, and you know, he, he, he also suggested you know, that, that she has been pretty toxic over the last few years uh, in many ways. But that that what she wrote in her resignation letter was was uh, actually quite accurate, and uh, uh, he was wondering was this a mea culpa moment for her? And uh, so, but you know, the truth is that 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 uh, it seems that the environment within the mainstream press at the moment, and in fact, it goes beyond that, doesn't it? it goes to academia and politics as well. The the, the environment within these. Uh, uh, people is is toxic, and you can't. There is absolutely self censorship in place because people can't say what they want to say. They're not free in any way, and and it comes back to what Brian always says: the the revolution eats its young. Yeah, I think that's the key statement. But let's be positive about it. Um, at least a jolt like this is is likely to make her look at things and think about things in a different way, and that's exactly what we need. But um, I, I think this is happening in some of the uh, bigger news news outlets, newspapers in UK, and if people change their spots and start to speak out in a sensible way, we should still support them, even though they might have been less than uh, whatever the word is in their previous days. Um, Alex, we're, we're pretty much out of time, so let's just uh, very quickly run through a couple more items. Uh, what's going on with the House of Commons church? London's paper, The Evening Standard, reports that they uh, are closing. They're being effectively deconsecrated. The newly arrived Dean of Westminster Abbey, Dr David Hoyle, no sooner gets his feet under the desk than he says in a, a letter of the 3rd of July that it is no longer appropriate or viable to maintain Sunday worship at St Margaret's. An exceptionally serious story for anyone who's interested in the Church of England, and I'm not sure whether we're going to be able to do an extra time today. I'm certainly up for it, and we'll go into a lot of, in fact, financial detail on the Church of England uh, if you're able to do an extra time segment, so members will be able to see far more of this. Uh, but there, there is a petition up on change.org for those who would like to see that. If you just search for St Margaret's Westminster change.org, you will find that, because this is uh, a harbinger of quite some serious uh, moves by the flagship buildings of the Church of England uh, to make themselves available only for profit, basically, and not for worship anymore. 
Okay, and uh, Brian, what's going on with conspiracies? Uh, well, it's an important subject for the BBC, Mike. Um, just wanted to mention this because several people mentioned it to me that the BBC had put up a little video uh, how to talk about conspiracies. It's astonishing in its uh, general presentation and uh, um, poor, <laughs> poorness. I don't quite know how to describe it, but I wanted to bring up it up because uh, it's interesting to see what's going on here. And this lady, Mariana Spring, I'm going to say she's just out of school yes. a little while ago. Yeah, we've, she, we've spoken yeah. about her. She is their specialist disinformation yeah. reporter. Yes, she. I did find some of her, one of her old school reports, as it were, actually. <laughs> and, uh, she, you know, she's jumped around a bit, worked for The Guardian, of course. But here she is giving guidance. And this is for us. If we think somebody is spinning us a conspiracy theory, how we should deal with them. So it's the BBC apparently teaching people how to deal with conspiracy theories. So Good. Here she is. She's received plenty of emails about coronavirus, <coughs> excuse me, conspiracies. And what she does is um, the star is a dad of three from Shropshire called Simon, who's asked some questions about COVID-19. He said it was patented. They said, no, that's not true. That was a virus to do with animals. Um, yes, Bill Gates is involved, but no, they don't want to talk about it. So uh -huh. it's very steered. But they bring in Professor Jovan Byford from the Open University to comment in a wise way about conspiracy theories and how to deal with them. Good. So it's all well orchestrated. And then you get tips. And the first tip is if somebody's talking to you, you've got to establish a basis for what they're talking about. So mm -hmm. remember that. Uh, you've got to avoid sweeping dismissals and saying you're wrong. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you've got to prevent, present facts and research and do this neutrally. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? Because the BBC can't do that themselves. Absolutely. But we've got to do it, apparently, to suss out this uh, conspiracy theory and make sure the person speaking to you has got valid information, something the BBC fails on again. Tip four, try to get to the bottom of the often legitimate concern at the heart of the conspiracy. So does the BBC ever do this? No. No, never. And they don't do it in this disgusting little video clip. Um, and this is the stinger. Conspiracy theories aren't simply a kooky aspect to the Internet. What are they? Well, they're this. In the months to come, they risk undermining important public health messages. Ah, so what so messages, they're actually a national security threat. What messages are about to come that this lady knows about that we don't? And they're so frightened that people may put out... Uh, uh, thoughts and ideas that are going to undermine the public health message. So here's the BBC really doing its propaganda job. This is the government speaking to you through this. I, I'm going to use this nicely. She's a young lady. She's very young and I think very naive. So I'm going to say she's being used. But this is really the government saying, no, 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 we can't have you challenging because we've got further messages to come mm. and it ends with a nice BBC all seeing eye. So encourage people to go and have a look at that and um, check up on the lady herself. It's quite fun to see what she hasn't hasn't done. Mm. Uh, well, actually, I can just give you a little sneak preview here because uh, go on a Twitter page and here's the quote. Here's me talking to Afternoon Live about this misleading Joe Swinson story spread on social media. Another typo there. I'm obviously having a bad day on the typo scene. I'll be told off after the programme. But um, if you want to know what this young lady's about, it's herself. 
We'll end there. Alex, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're still quite light-hearted on UK column, but it's pretty obvious something very dark and sinister is being put into place in UK and elsewhere in Western Europe. Speak up, talk about it, dig into the information and challenge people because ultimately it's the exposure that will stop this happening. We'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.